I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Amy O'Keefe, an M&A partner at Nixon Peabody in Boston. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. David, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to chat with you today. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First, a little bit about you and your background and how you came to practice law. Your practice today, which incorporates private equity firms, strategics, and privately held companies, how you go about building the privately held, family held piece of your practice, your work internally at Nixon Peabody in talent management, and finally, what you do outside of work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to practice law. Yeah, sure. So I'm talking to you right now from Boston, which is where I've lived since 2005. But my route to get here and my route to become an M&A partner at Nixon Peabody certainly was a little bit circuitous, as you probably often find with the people that you talk to, David. And I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I'll tell you how I found myself to be in this place. And I'll just preface it by saying that the point in my life that I'm going to be talking to you about was a long time ago. And my naivete as a youngster will shine through. So just rest assured that there's been a lot of evolution and growth since that point in time. So I grew up in a little tiny town right south of Albany, New York, Loudonville, New York, which is like two blocks wide and one traffic light. So a small little town. My parents worked for New York State, both of them. So I certainly didn't have any sort of lawyer references in my immediate family, certainly. Some of my extended relatives, um, I come from a big Italian family. So I had aunts and uncles that were kind of small town lawyers. You know, they were sort of jack of all trades, right? They do real estate and trust in estates and commercial agreements. So they were in court every day. And that's how I started to understand what a lawyer did. You know, I was always sort of fascinated by it and interested in it. And my other pop culture references that I'll divulge to you, I'm dating myself, of course, but it's like Ally McBeal and the practice. So I thought that being a lawyer was going into court and making very important speeches and very theatrical. So when I got to law school, That's the path that I took. I did a lot of moot court, a lot of mock trial. I did a lot of kind of standing up in in front of fake courtrooms and making my case. And I really enjoyed it. And to be honest, David, I was really pretty good at it. I won a bunch of awards in law school for mock trial stuff. So litigation was going to be it for me. That's how I was going to chart the course of my career and never look back. So I was lucky enough to find myself in a summer associate position down in Washington, D.C., where I went to law school with the law firm of Sonnenschein, Nath, and Rosenthal. And this was back in like 2001 when I was a summer associate there. And I walked in the first day and met all of my colleagues and made it very clear that litigation was where it was at for me and that that's what I was interested in doing. And, and you know, politely, please don't give me any other assignments because I'm going to be a really great litigator when I grow up. So I did litigation work for those seven weeks over the summer of 2001. And in the course of those seven weeks, realized, oh boy, oh, oh, this isn't for me. I like standing up in front of a courtroom and I like making a speech, but I found myself, David, so uncomfortable 
with the research aspects of litigation and the idea that the client was bringing you this very important, very high stakes question that needed to be answered through case law. And they were going to pay the firm a ton of money to do it. And I would spend 25 hours looking at Lexis and Westlaw and reading cases and trying to figure out the distinctions. And at the end of that 25 hours, I'd go to the partner and I'd be like, well, it could be this. Or it could be this other thing. And I was just very uncomfortable with the vagueness of it. I think that the way that my mind was wired at that point in time, I was just so much more drawn to like, well, what's the right answer? How can I get to the right answer? And I was lucky enough to realize over the course of that seven-week summer associate stint that at least when you're a junior associate, (laughs) it's certainly not true in my career now, but when you're a junior corporate kind of like has questions with a right and a wrong answer. Like you can form a corporation in Delaware and you can know that you're getting that hundred percent, right. You're getting an A on that assignment. Whereas I just didn't feel like I was going to be getting that gratification of getting the right answer out of litigation. So I was so lucky to be able to kind of pivot after that summer associate experience. And when Sun and Shine made me an offer for me to come on board as a first year In the fall of 2002, I went directly into their corporate practice and never looked back. So I was so lucky to be able to kind of get my footing, but it it wasn't a straight line. So one question, I mean, obviously, as you progress in an M&A career, you do have to get comfortable with uncertainty and choosing maybe the the better answer, but not the perfect or the best answer. And and so describe that process for yourself, how you came to accept the just the, the uncertainties in any legal practice. Yeah, it was a real evolution over time. And I would like to tell you that within two years, I had solved this problem and I was very comfortable with the gray, but it took much longer for me. It was it was really an evolution. And I think that it was all about just doing deals over and over again, getting enough reps on deals so that I'd seen the issues over and over again, and just building my confidence so that when new issues came up, I'm like, all right, I've had an issue sort of similar in the past. Let me think about that. Let me talk to some of my other colleagues and, you know, just kind of working the problem. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all about working the problem, but you got to get that muscle memory and that, that professional confidence by doing deals over and over again, I think to really, at least for me, to really feel it. So I'm certainly there now and I've been there for a while, but it was a long evolution of just practice, practice, practice and getting good results that reaffirmed my efforts that I think helped me to make that leap. And talk about your transition from DC to Boston. Yeah. So tail is old as time. I lateraled as a third year associate. So I loved DC. So I did three years in law school in DC and three years as a young corporate associate in DC. And it was such a great city, particularly a great city to be young in. I had a ton of fun. Um, But I found after a while that it, it started to feel kind of transient, like law school friends moved to other cities and Friends that I had acquired since law school moved to other cities. And it just felt, at least to me, like it was not a place where a lot of people choose to put down roots. And that's really what I was looking for. I did not want to go back to Albany and be an Albany, New York lawyer, although Nixon Peabody does have an excellent Albany, New York office uh, that I do visit sometimes. 
I didn't want to go to New York City because that felt just too big for me. So Boston seemed like a super happy medium. I had spent a lot of time in Boston growing up. I had a large number of friends in Boston and my younger sister was in grad school in Boston. So Boston seemed like the obvious choice. So I started to interview with firms in the fall of 2005. Sun and Shine did not have a Boston office. So I was sort of starting from scratch. But it was a nice opportunity for me to sort of do a little bit of a career reset and try something new. And so talk about the difference between interviewing as a law student and interviewing as a mid-level associate and also where you are in your career now, how your experience doing that influences how you look at potential mid-level associate hires. Yeah, all really good questions. So when I was interviewing for my summer associate job, that would have been the fall of 2000. And the market then was not great, right? As you will recall, David, it was not a good scene for law firms, for M&A generally, for anyone coming out of law school. It was just tough. And there was a real air of desperation, I think, about all of us who were looking for jobs at that point. And I sent resumes everywhere. I got some interviews, but I also got plenty of just rejections out of the gate. And in fact, this always sort of makes me laugh, but I got a rejection letter without an interview from the esteemed law firm of Nixon Peabody. And I tried very hard to find a copy of that letter when I was made partner because I thought it would be such a great thing to hang on the wall of my office. But alas, I was not able to track that down. So the interview process for a summer associate job was tough. And it was just really all about crossing your fingers, getting through these interviews, and trying to land a job somewhere. And I'm I'm so grateful that I did. And I, I was able to get a really nice start at Sun and Shine. But when I was lateraling three years later, it was just a totally different experience. So that would have been the fall of 2005 that I was looking to move from Washington to Boston. And the market was obviously much different than much more robust. There was a lot more opportunity for young lateral associate talent. So I certainly didn't feel the desperation that I felt when I was looking for my first summer associate gig. And that really allowed me to think about the options a little bit more thoughtfully and try to figure out what was going to be important for me and finding a place that I could build my career. And there's a lot of choices out there. At least there were a lot of choices out there for me in 2005. And what it really came down to for me was this sense that, okay, a big law firm, that's where I'm going to end up. I'm going to end up in big law and I'm going to do work with sophisticated clients. No matter where I go, I'm going to be doing exciting M&A no matter where I go. So how do I want to spend my days and how do I want to spend my time and who do I want to spend that time with? So I was really looking for a cultural fit and finding a group of people that I'd enjoy working with, that I felt kind of aligned with my view of the world. And that if I was sitting across a conference room table for the fifth night in a row at like midnight with them, would I be happy to be there? So trying to slice and dice it, I was really trying to get a feel when I interviewed with firms of not just what kind of work would I be doing and what would my day-to-day law profession be like, but like, who are these people? And are they going to get me? And am I going to get them? And are we going to support each other as I try to grow a career over the course of many, many years? And I have to say, I hit the jackpot with Nixon Peabody. Like it has 
really played out in the exact way that I wanted. And I'm really grateful for all of the support that the team gave me as I was kind of growing up as an associate and turning into a partner. And you know, you asked at the beginning of the question, kind of how my experience frames the way that I now try to support members of my team. And I find myself thinking about this a lot. You know, M&A is tough. There's tough days, there's tough weeks, there's tough months. It's an intense business and there's no way around that. And it's going to be that way no matter what big law firm you're at. But I try to bring a lot of humanity to it. And I try to make sure that my team feels supported by me and that there's always an open door and that I'm here to help them solve problems and help them to progress in their careers. So I'm really grateful for the platform that Nixon Peabody gave to me as a jumping off point when I lateraled in. And I'm certainly trying to do the same for the next generation here. I I think many people will be able to identify with your sense of desperation as a second-year law student in looking for a job in a difficult market. As you interview law students now for legal intern positions. And as you mentor them, how do you respond when you get the feeling from an interviewee or an associate that that person does have that sense of desperation or nervousness? Yeah, I try to be really sensitive to that. And I try to be honest about my experience. And I am honest if the conversation warrants it about some of the rejections that I received. I'm honest if the conversation warrants it about how I thought that I knew what my career path was going to be, but I was wrong. And I'm so glad that I remained flexible because I don't think that there's any magic answer for a law student or someone who's trying to enter into this industry in times when the economy is not strong and it's difficult to get a foothold. I do think it's about not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And you may have thought that you wanted one thing from your career, and you may you know, have had your eyes set on a certain goal for years, but it may just not be the right time. And the universe may eventually get you there. But being flexible and staying calm and just believing in yourself that like you will eventually work this out, I feel like that's the best that I can do for law students in that situation. It's really tough. Talk about your career now and how you think about your practice. Yeah. So I've got what I consider to be a really cool practice. I do M&A deals all day, every day, but no one deal is ever the same. I work with a widely varied client group and I consider myself really lucky to be able to have this kind of practice. So when I think about my practice, David, there's really kind of three different legs of the stool that make up my overall M&A practice. So do quite a bit of buy-side work for strategic companies. So think Fortune 500 public companies when they're doing their strategic acquisitions. I do that work. On the other side of the table, I've got a really nice sell-side practice where I do quite a bit of work for family-owned businesses or entrepreneurs who are looking to exit. And of course, a big piece of that is often representing founders or management teams in their sale to private equity. So if the family-owned business is exiting to a private equity buyer, you're not just negotiating the M&A deal, but of course, you're also negotiating potentially rollover investment documents and go-forward operating agreements and things of that nature. So it's kind of interesting from that perspective. And then the third piece of the stool kind of blends 
both of those things. So I think about that as kind of the financial investor piece of my practice, where I'm working with private equity firms, but also increasingly a number of family offices. And we help those financial investors to deploy capital for their investments, manage their portfolio company matters, and then facilitate exits when they're ready to, to flip things and get out. So it's really, it's widely varied. And I love that. Talk about how you've gone about building the founder entrepreneur piece of your business, because obviously that's very different than a public company practice where you're going to have relationships with in-house lawyers and you may work for the same company on deals for many years or the relationship you may have with a private equity firm for which you may do deals consistently for years and years. How does building a practice representing founders and entrepreneurs and family businesses differ from those other two practices? Yeah, well, I'll tell you that it has been a very intentional effort and it does not happen overnight. We have built that practice you know, slowly and methodically, but it has really paid off. So I'm part of a group of partners. There's myself and three other partners from Nixon Peabody who really do work together as a team, both in terms of our client service and our marketing efforts. So this sell side initiative is really something that the four of us have been working and grinding at for many years now. But what we've tried to do, David, is that we very deliberately have built what we feel like is a one-stop shop for owner-operators and other sellers who think that they may eventually be looking to exit. So, and when I say one-stop shop, what I mean is, you know, we have developed what we feel is a very strong network of everyone that you need in order to get a sell-side deal done. So obviously, we're the M&A talent, but we have a very strong network of accountants and wealth advisors and investment banks, insurance brokers, like you name it. And we can build a team around a seller to make sure that we're coordinating everything and that they've got a law firm quarterbacking the entire process and is bringing in all of the other advisors that they're going to need to get to a really good result. And through the development of that network, we've just organically developed all of these wonderful and really rich relationships with a number of different referral sources throughout the community that has really helped us to grow that sell-side practice. And we've been doing it for so long now, David, like a lot of it is word of mouth as well. You know, we help a seller and set them up well post M&A exit. And then they've got other friends in the community that are in similar situations looking for a succession plan. And those folks get pointed to Nixon Peabody. So it took a lot of work to build that practice, but knock on wood, it's turned itself into a self-perpetuating engine at this point, which is awesome. Talk about the challenges and rewards of that piece of your practice, as opposed to representing institutions that are much more familiar with doing deals. Yeah. So representing sellers and particularly first-time sellers like we often do is is a really... It's a different practice and it, it can be challenging, but I also find it to be super rewarding. It's one of the pieces of my practice that I enjoy the most. And I think that what sets it apart so much is that, you know, it's such an emotional process for a first time seller. This is 
you know, potentially a business that they've spent their whole lives building, or in some cases that generations before them started and has built. So to go through a process where you're going to let that go can be very, very emotional for a seller. And I do not think that enough attorneys are attuned to that. One of my favorite mentors who has since retired, but helped me when I was an associate was an excellent Nixon TV partner named Charlie Clays. And he used to often tell me in these situations that, you know, dealing with a seller like this, Amy, it's 40% law, but the rest of your job, that 60% is all psychology. And you've just got to figure out, you know, how to build the trust and the relationship with that client so that when it comes time in a deal to dig in and press on things that might be a little bit uncomfortable, like, uh, for example, in the course of due diligence, you've then got that strong relationship and trust and the client can follow your advice. So it can be tricky from that perspective to hold the hand of someone who's a little bit emotionally tied to the business, who is an excellent owner operator, but has never been through an M&A deal process before and know what to do to kind of guide them to the right result in a way that's going to feel good for them. To be honest, I think it's a real talent. And I think that myself and my team do a really good job of that. But on the flip side, like I said, that work is so, so rewarding to me. Like, you know, every deal is wonderful when it closes, but when I can close a deal for a founder or an owner operator that has spent his or her lifetime building something and I can get them a check on the exit that is going to change their life or the lives of their generations to come. It's a really, really good feeling that that I think is a level beyond what I feel when I close certain other deals. Talk a little bit about the strategic and PE part of your practice. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we find ourselves on both the buy side and the sell side in the PE and the family office and the strategic space, which is something else that I love about the practice. So just a couple of examples here. I've represented Health Catalyst, which is a public company out of Salt Lake City for several years. And we do most of their strategic acquisitions. So I love working with that team. They're excellent and super smart and super thoughtful about how they approach deals. So that's a regular buy side strategic client for us. And then on the flip side, I just very recently, like in early January, signed a $900 million deal where our sell-side client says getters, they're an Italian public company out of Milan. They're selling their medical nitinol division to Resonetics, which is a private equity-backed strategic that's ultimately owned by Carlisle and GTCR. So that was a, a super nice carve-out deal that was really gratifying. And again, I love working with that team at SACE. And I find when we do these private equity deals or these deals for strategics, that's really the part of the experience that I find myself enjoying the most. Like we're working with the same teams over and over. So it seems like we're really picking up a really nice cadence. Myself and my team learn how these groups think about risk, think about certain deal issues. And it's almost like we get to the point where we're able to read each other's minds as we do enough deals together. And that feels really good. It feels like we're just kind of a well-oiled machine, an M&A execution machine. And, and it feels awesome. You know, David, as I'm talking to you, though, I'm realizing like so many of the deals that I do, like these health catalyst deals have been announced, this safe scatters deal was announced. But so many of the deals that I do and that my team works on 
aren't publicized or don't hit the deal tables, you know, for various reasons. They include private parties on both sides. No one wants to publicize it. So it's interesting. It's like that there's this whole unpublished M&A economy that's going on out there sort of outside of the deal tables. And that's where a lot of my practice sits. And so, Amy, talk a little bit about the work you do as a partner within Nixon Peabody. Yeah, so I've described a pretty robust M&A practice, which certainly keeps me busy, but I've got a firm leadership role that I really enjoy as well. So I'm the team leader of what we call the corporate talent team, which is Nixon Peabody's fancy name for all of the corporate associates nationwide. So I'm the oversight partner for all of those corporate associates. And I do things like manage deal staffing across the country for corporate matters, workflow management, I handle things like evaluations and training and development programs and the like. So I get to spend a lot of time focusing on investing in our talent, which is a super exciting opportunity for me. I really like it. And it gives me the opportunity to support others in the way that my mentors had supported me and to craft the kind of law firm and the kind of legal industry that we're going to bring into the future. So it's fantastic. And then finally, talk a little bit about your life outside of work. Yeah. So there, I do have a life outside of work, which I'm proud to be able to say as an M&A attorney because it is no small trick. But I've got a wonderful husband. I've got two little kids, an eight-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. So I do all of the typical stuff of parents with young kids. We do soccer games and dance recitals and plenty of video games. We used to be very sanctimonious about screen time in my house, but then COVID came and then we were all at home together all the time. So now we play video games. And family aside, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I've been to about 40 concerts. The next one that I'm due to see would be in March in Boston. Although I just got booked on a business trip to Milan that's going to overlap with that. So I've got to figure out how to get Bruce Springsteen to play in Milan in March when I'm there. So I'll work on that. And was there a a favorite Springsteen concert of those 41 that you've attended? They're all special in their own way. But I went to a few down at Giant Stadium in Jersey many, many years ago. But I just remember those as kind of the quintessential warm summer night concerts where you're in a big stadium and drinking cold beer and everyone's singing along. And those will have a special place in my heart for sure. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. Mm -hmm.